Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. I've never been a massive connoisseur of Senegalese history. In fact, the first time that Senegal really impinged on my consciousness was when Senegal um, beat France in the opening match of the 2002 World Cup in Japan and South Korea. The former Um, colonial power, Dominic. It's former colonial power, exactly. So it was a sort of moment charged with historic significance and, and not purely sporting history. And Tom, you volunteered to uh, dip your toes into Senegalese history for this episode in our World Cup marathon. And what have you come up with? Well, so I vaguely knew about um, Senegal's prowess on the football field, both because of the, uh, the the victory over France that you mentioned. Also, I think they won the um, the African Cup of Nations. They did indeed, yes. So they're, they're obviously very, very good at football. Um, there's one other thing that I know about Senegal, yeah. uh, which is its its most famous tourist attraction, um, and which featured on is one of the 12 original World Heritage sites that were chosen by UNESCO in 1978. And now there are, you know, there are lots and lots and lots of them. So yeah. Stonehenge Landscape, for instance, is a UNESCO World Heritage site for now. Right. Um, yeah. Maybe removed if they go ahead with their tunnel. Who knows? Um, and actually, four of those um, 12 original World Heritage sites, Dominic, uh, feature in our series. So the Galapagos Islands for Ecuador, we. Yes, we'll feature in our episode on on uh, on Ecuador. Um, two uh, in uh, our Polish episodes of the massive salt mine that goes for hundreds of miles, uh, yep. central Krakow, and Senegal's most visited tourist attraction, which is on the Isle of Gore. Okay. And you may be wondering, well, what is? Have you heard of Gore? I haven't, Tom. I'm looking forward to you educating me about it. <laughs> well, uh, I won't educate you. I will let the UNESCO website oh, educate kind. you. So this is what this is how they describe Gore. The island of Gore lies off the coast of Senegal, opposite Dakar. From the 15th to the 19th century, it was the largest slave trading centre on the African coast, ruled in succession by the Portuguese, Dutch, English, and French. Its architecture is characterized by the contrast between the grim slave quarters and the elegant houses of the slave traders. Today, it continues to serve as a reminder of human exploitation and as a sanctuary for reconciliation. And the most famous building on Gore is um, La Maison des Esclaves, so the House of Slaves, which was built in 1776. Um, It is notorious as a holding center for enslaved Africans. It's kind of... uh, red washed um it's got cellars um with kind of you know iron bars in it yeah. um and it has a doorway that looks out onto the atlantic ocean um and this is celebrated as the door of no return and there are famous photographs of it there's a picture of a, a silhouetted woman standing in this doorway kind of leaning against it um and this is the door out of which, as the, the Gore Tourist Board puts it, millions of African slaves took the final step from their home continent and onto the slave ships that would transport them if they survived the journey to the new world. Gosh, so it's a very sort of baleful place, yeah. basically. So, so basically, I'm you know, putting my hands up. This is pretty much the, the only image of Senegal that came into my mind when, right. we were, when we were divvying up all the various countries. And I thought it would be interesting to put some history 
to this image that was kind of so vivid in my mind. I mean, it's, it's kind of emblematic of, of the slave trade, this idea of, of going through a door forever, the door of no return. Yeah, terrifying, terrifying thought. Um, and it's, it, the, the, the House of Slaves, it's been a museum for many, many decades. So I think Senegal became independent from France in 1960, something like that. Right. Um, and it, this opened as a museum very shortly after, so 1962. Um, it's been visited by the Pope, by John Paul II, by Nelson Mandela, by a range of American presidents. So Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama. Um, but above all, it's a place of pilgrimage for, um, for African Americans. And basically, I mean, it, it is, I would guess, the single most celebrated uh, emblem of, of the Atlantic slave trade. And when you say celebrated, you don't mean people are letting off fireworks and jumping around into light. You mean, you know, it's the most well-known be- because it's of its... It's a place of pilgrimage. It's a place of pilgrimage. Right. Yeah, a place of... Uh, but it was a, a place shrine. of horror, I suppose. It serves as a brilliant visual image of the horror. Mm-hmm. The sense of, of a permanent departure. And so that's yeah. why coming back to it, I guess, you know, that's, that, that's the, the, the resonance and the power of it. Well, that, what, that expression, the door of no return, I mean, very, yeah, chilling. very potent. Yeah. yeah. So the history of this is that uh, basically there doesn't seem to have been anything much on Gore uh, before the Portuguese arrived because there's not very much water there and it seems to have been completely infested by termites. Unprepossessing. Not, not really kind of ideal real estate. Yes. So the Portuguese obviously love that kind of place. Um, we did our episodes on the Portuguese voyages of discovery. Um, it becomes a trading post for them. And basically um, over the next 100, 200, 300 years, it's just endlessly swapping hands. So the, the Dutch take control of it, the English take control of it, the French take control of it. And by the 18th century, the French are the kind of, you know, basically the French putting down roots there, periodically obedient to the rhythms of, of France's wars with Britain, the, 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 the British might come in and take over, but only for kind of a few years at a time. It's basically become French. And 1783, the French established their rule there for good. Um, and you know, in various forms, they will rule over Gore and the hinterland of, of Senegal, uh, yeah, until 1960. Right. And, and independence. So, um, why Gore and not, say, further inland? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the most obvious answer for that is that the, um, the inland is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. It is very, very, very dangerous to people's health. So, Muslim writers, Muslim geographers, they say of this stretch of the coastline, um, if you go there, you will almost certainly die. So there's a geographer in the 11th century called Al-Bakri who says it's almost impossible to go there and not fall ill. Right. And um, I'm sure you remember we talked about this with Carl Harper and we talked about just how ravaged by disease it is. So um, I've just got his book here, um, the, The Crude Death Rate in the 18th century was 270 people per 1,000. So, um, Crikey, yeah. So one in four. An ordinary pre-modern society, he says, might have a crude death rate of 30 per 1,000. Yeah. And every year uh, along this stretch of the coast, more than a quarter of the Europeans resident there perished. So essentially you want to keep, <laughs> you know, as many breezes and as many currents between you and the microbes and the pathogens mm-hmm. that lie on the mainland as possible. And just to give people a sense, if they're not familiar with it, so we're on the coast of West Africa, um, below. It's, it's part of Dakar now. It's it's yes. it's part of the the vast kind of sprawl of Dakar. But back then it wasn't. It was a kind of distinct entity. Yeah. Dare I use the word liminal? 
Um, so it's on the it's on the border zone. It's a, a place that is neither one thing nor the other. <laughs> we're not, so it's, we're not it's, an academic it's, podcast, Tom. <laughs> no, it's, so it's it's African, but it's not continental. Right. Um, I mean, I think that's the, the kind of key thing. Yeah. Uh, it, you look one way, you have Africa. You look the other way, you have the Atlantic. And obviously, if you're traders coming from the Atlantic looking to pick up. Um, uh, trade from Africa, which of course would include slaves and then take it across the sea. Um, you know, very, very well positioned. It's still dangerous though. I mean, even on Gore, it's dangerous. And so, um, basically Europeans are very, very reluctant to stay there any length of time. Yeah. Um, and so what they do is that they will marry local women. Uh, and this is a practice that goes right the way back to the Portuguese time. So these, these, these women who are, um, uh, local, they come to be called signares. Right. Is that how you pronounce it, Dominic? It's a, it was it signares. Signares, I guess. Yeah. Um, so the, the European traders will almost invariably leave and their wives, and I use wives slightly in inverted commas, um, they come to serve as, as the agents of their absent husbands and increasingly as right. traders in their own right. And they will then bring their children up, um, as their own. And they will then raise their sons as heirs, as, as, as people who will inherit these kind of trading business. And so you get these very, very wealthy Franco African trading dynasties. Right. And these are the people who are building, uh, the houses, um, on Gore at the end of the 18th century. So for instance, the, the man who builds the house of slaves with the, the door of no return. Yeah. He's the son of a signora and a French surgeon. And his sister, um, who also marries a Frenchman who um, runs away because there's a yellow fever outbreak, um, she is also a player in the slave trade. And that's late 18th century. When that's late there. 18th century. So, so essentially, the um, the slaving that is happening on Gore is it's not just French, it's not just African, it's the meeting point between them, um, yeah. and this is, is 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 expressed through these kind of Creole dynasties that that that, that emerged there. Yeah. Um, Seventeen ninety four, the French Republic bans the slave trade. Uh, Napoleon, in due course, will will relegitimize it, but it it does not resume from Gore. So seventeen ninety four is is the terminus for the slave trade, and so the um, the Franco African trading dynasties move into the peanut trade, Dominic. Peanut trade, like uh, Jimmy Carter. Like Jimmy Carter, yes. <laughs> Very like Jimmy Carter. And, you know, with the, the kind of growing industrialization, growing size of ships, the harbor facilities on Gore are inadequate. Um, and so they move to the mainland. And the result of that is that the architecture of 18th century Gore survives. Right. So we always see this. It's, it's trading cities that get left behind yeah. that, that kind of have the historic architecture. Yeah. Because if they don't, they get demolished and replaced and, and, and so on. And so it, it serves as a kind of very atmospheric reminder of the world of the slave trade just before its abolition. Yeah. Which means that in 1960, when Senegal becomes independent, Gore is there as an emblem of the slave trade, but a, a very picturesque emblem of the slave trade with, with beautiful kind of buildings, narrow winding roads, yeah. no real development. Um, and so it has historical interest and it is picturesque. So it's a sort of a far more horrific equivalent of formerly industrial kind of villages in Britain, let's say, which were left behind by economic change. Well, yeah. And then preserved and untouched, I suppose. Well, like Venice, say. Right. Yes. So Venice is a great trading city, but its decline begins in the 18th century, so that when it loses its independence at the end of the 
um, of, of the 18th century, it's it's preserved. Yeah. Um, so I think this is kind of rather similar. Although this is charged, this has a kind of moral charge, right? Because of the trade. It is. And it's it, it comes to possess this particular charge because of um, the guy who... Uh, he, he, he becomes the curator of the House of Slaves, uh, a man called Bubakar Joseph Nda. And um, I hope I pronounced that right. I may not have done. It's N-D-A-I-A-Y-E. Um, and he is a genius at promoting it. And he is the guy who, who pushed the idea that um, a million slaves have left through the door of no return, that 20 million have been exported from Gore over the, the 400 year period of the slave trade from there. So 20 million from Gore alone. Crikey. That's very much, uh, what, what this museum is, is saying. Yeah. So it's up there on the billboards. And so from the seventies onwards, so it's, it's there in the sixties, but it's in the seventies that it really takes off as a kind of major tourist attraction. So this is when it gets put on the, um, the, the register of, of, uh, UNESCO World Heritage Sites, one of the, the first 12 sites anywhere in the world to be put on it. Yeah. And its focus for tourists is reflective of, of events in America where you've had the civil rights movement. Yeah. And so you have a, a, a growingly prosperous, um, African American middle class who want to commemorate how it was that they came to America. Yeah. And there are, no real memorials to the slave trade in the United States itself. So there are memorials to slavery, but not to the yeah, trade, a- I suppose. So the plantations, but there aren't. But you wouldn't go to a plantation, would you? I mean, it would be no, no. There's there's no there's no kind of emotional focus yeah. for for the sense of of grief and pain and suffering. And so this, you know, this door, the door of no return, the house of slaves, on this kind of exquisitely beautiful but menacing island is Mm. is kind of perfect um you know there are other sites as well but they tend to be in places that are either very um politically unstable at the time like ghana yeah so in the 60s there's you know it's it's unstable or economically unstable so like tanzania or guinea um so uh, senegal is relatively stable relatively prosperous um, and also the 1970s is when you have Alex Haley's book Roots, which is yes. made into a television film, which again kind of dramatizes in a brilliant way, uh, the whole horror of the Atlantic slave trade. Right. I mean, Roots is 19, the, the novel is 1976. The TV series is 1977. And as you say, it's impossible to overestimate the effect that had on African Americans. Um, and they're sort of, their desire to find out about their own history and and this sort of idea of a pilgrimage back to find your roots and whatnot. And as I say, that idea of a door of no return is so haunting that that is the image that I had in my mind when I said that I would, I would do Senegal because I, you know, I, I I had that image. Um, And so I've, I've now given you the backstory of how it is that um, it came to be the icon of uh, Senegalese, history that it is and indeed yeah. of african-american history um but there is hanging over hanging over it a question that um is rather similar to the question that i came to ask when i started to do work on uh, the origins of islam which is is it actually true what are the uh, sources for this okay and so um i think this might be a diplomatic moment to take a break uh, right. and when we come back we'll look and see uh, to what extent 
was the door of no return actually what the tourist industry says it was? Brilliant. Okay. See you after the break. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We're talking about the House of Slaves on the island of Gore in Senegal. Um, and Tom, in the first half, you painted this very evocative picture of the island, of the House of Slaves and the sort of the lanes and streets around it, and of this particular place, this incredibly haunting place, the door of no return, through which, um, how many people was it again? I mean, it was something a like million. a million. A million, a million people, is the claim. A million slaves passed, never to return, on their journey to the new world. The problem is that there is no documentary evidence for this claim at all. Right. Okay. And there's also no documentary evidence for the the claim that 20 million slaves were exported from Gore itself. Because that's a colossal, I mean, that was an eye-watering claim. So the, one, of the, one of the things that is happening in the study of the Atlantic slave trade yeah. is that over the course of the 60s and 70s, at exactly the same time as Gore is being kind of hyped up, yeah. Um, you get scholars in uh, US history departments who are conducting systematic research into the Atlantic slave trade. Yeah. And what this research indicates is that um, most of the slaves who are being taken from Senegal are departing from depots at the mouths of the Senegal and, and Gamba rivers, which lie um, north and south of Gore. So not from the House of Slaves at all? No. And the House of Slaves itself yeah. um it seems was never used as a warehouse for slaves. So the cellars in the in the basement, where you know you you go down there and the guys will say this is where slaves were kept before they were transported. Yeah, uh, they may have been used to house slaves, but if so, they were domestic slaves. They were slaves that were owned by the merchants who. So they who were slaves the who weren't going anywhere. They were working for the. Yeah, yeah. they're not going to. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the door of no return was not absolutely not an exit point because uh, apparently below it there are rocks. And so it would be dangerous for boats to dock there. So were slaves being transported from the island of Gore at all? Yeah, the estimate is it's about um, about 500 per annum. Okay, so uh, I mean an, a number, but nowhere near the number that would justify yeah. 20 million or whatever. Exactly so. Now, the guy who comes particularly associated with this, uh, with this research um, is probably the most eminent historian of the Atlantic slave trade of his generation, uh, a man called Philip D. Curtin, who is the professor of history at John Hopkins. Um, his book, The Atlantic Slave Trade, a census came out in 1969, and it was kind of absolutely groundbreaking. Yeah. Um, and he, I mean, I mean, he's very, very upfront in condemning uh, the claims that are made for Gore. He says the whole story is phony. He calls the House of Slaves a hoax. He calls it a scam. And obviously, this does not go down well with the Senegalese tourist authority. No. And it doesn't go down well, firstly, because, um, you know, it's, it's not what you want to hear, have your, you know, your prime tourist attraction condemned as a hoax. But it's also because um, Philip Curtin is white and American. Yeah. Um, and so there's very much a feeling that, uh, is it entirely diplomatic for white Americans to undermine yeah. to be lecturing and to kind of be basically saying that the the, the research is shoddy and so there is a, a huge controversy that rages through the 90s actually often conducted in the pages of le monde in in france mm -hmm. rather than in america uh but basically i would say now that that curtin's case seems to be pretty generally accepted as i say i 
I knew nothing about this apart from the image of the door of no return. Yeah. Just kind of reading around it. So I've been reading around it the past week or so. Um, it's pretty much the consensus among Western scholars. So there's um, a professor at Chicago called Ralph Austin, and he says there are literally no historians who believe the slave house is what they're claiming it to be, or that believes Gore was was statistically significant in terms of the slave trade. There's uh, in Senegal, there's a very distinguished historian, Abdoulaye Kamara. Again, I hope I've pronounced that right. Um, who says that um, he is a historian. I'm not allowed to be sentimental. So. Right. You know. So he, yeah, he says the House of Slaves offers a strong, powerful, sentimental history, but I'm a historian. I'm not allowed to be sentimental. Yeah. And it's also percolated down to the tourist guide. So the Lonely Planet guide to West Africa. Gore's fabricated history boils down to an emotional manipulation by government officials and tour companies of people who come here as part of a genuine search for cultural roots. Cracky, that's pretty strong. Yeah, it is. It is strong. It is strong. Um, and so, I, I mean, I think this kind of raises obviously all kinds of interesting and sensitive questions yeah so the first obvious question is which i am not qualified to answer because i'm not an african-american but does it matter if the history is exaggerated so i found a number of quotations from uh african-americans who who basically say so so there's um in time in 2004, it ran a story on this whole thing, and it quotes a school teacher, for, a, a, a school teacher from Washington D.C., who says, "There's an unusual human need to have a sacred place. This is ours, even knowing what she even knew. knowing that it's exaggerated." Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kamara says that the door is a symbol, and that the history and memory needs to have a strong symbol. And Dion Brand, who's a Canadian poet and a novelist, um, I mean, she, I think, writes really, really fascinatingly that the door exists as an absence a thing in fact which we do not know about a place we do not know so in in other words the very fact that it's not what it says it is is what gives it its power because it points to to everything that has been lost it points to the 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 way that people have been uprooted that entire stories have been forgotten that entire history has been erased and it's a kind of absent center if you want to put it like that so listening to that dion brand that seems to me a very convoluted way of trying to justify the fact that the you know the place you're visiting is not the place you think it is but on the other hand i suppose the counter argument would be we in in britain have loads of historical sites that are Bogus, you know, bogus, fabricated that we we attribute with all kinds of meaning that's really not necessarily justified. I mean, I can't think of them. I can't pluck them off the shelf. But okay, but but I think I think actually the parallel isn't really with tourist sites; it's with pilgrimage sites. Right? Yeah. You know, you can. You know, we've we've done the Kaaba. We've and in that we we talked about the the tomb of Christ, and or you think about um, tombs of saints or whatever. You were saying about Jerusalem, Tom. That you go to Jerusalem and people say, "Well, this is Calvary. This is this," and, and actually, it's custom and tradition that tells you it's this, rather than rigorous and the emotional investment, right? Because a place that that comes to have the emotional investment of its visitors it does, I think, come to take on a yeah, dare I say, sacral. Quality. No, absolutely right. You're um, right. Yeah. So I think the image of the door is powerful enough that it can survive the uh, the fact that it it isn't actually overtly what it says it is. I mean, yeah. I think it does still endure as a symbol. I think the other thing that's interesting about it is that it becomes a UNESCO heritage site the year before Auschwitz does. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that lurking behind quite a lot of this is the way that um, sites to do with the Holocaust are starting to be packaged as places for tourists to visit. Yeah. Um, so 
I think that that's a that's a possibility. I think that that one thing that is slightly awkward about this is that by emphasizing the slaves who were taken to North America and by tailoring the experience of visiting it to the people who can pay for it, in other words, Americans, one awkward question is, well, what about the slaves who were taken to, say, to Brazil or yeah, to the Caribbean? Yeah, who were by far the, I mean, the Brazilian element of the slave trade was the single biggest element, wasn't it? We've discussed that in previous episodes. Yeah. Um, and presumably they're not getting visitors from Brazil no. to, uh, to the island of Gori. Well, there may be a few, but I, I, I don't think so. Not many. And I think also that it touches on issues that I think have become a lot more sensitive now than they were, say, in the 1990s. Because what's striking when you read the debate in the 1990s is actually, it's not how vituperative it is, but but relative to today, how measured it is. So there's indisputably, you know, there is a sense of resentment on the part of African scholars, of white American scholars kind of crashing in and, and... laying down the law. Um, and I think there is also, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a sense in, in, um, academic departments in America that it is usually white historians who are kind of undermining these narratives. It tends to be white historians. But- so, sorry, Tom, I was just going to jump in and say, there's been a colossal furore in the United States um, about this very issue with regard to a different site. Yeah. So this is Elmina Castle in Ghana, I think. Yeah. So this is exactly what I thought about when I started reading this. And I was reading about, you know, what, what happened in the 1990s and thinking, actually, it seems to have passed off quite, quite, <laughs> quite quietly. Because as you say, there's been this scandal, uh, kind of explosion of debate and fury around exactly this issue this summer. Yeah. So the president of the American Historical Association, who was a man called James Sweet, a very distinguished historian, I think, he wrote an article in their sort of newsletter talking about what he saw as the dangers of present-mindedness in history, of sort of subjecting history to of making it purely a vehicle for contemporary politics. And he gives, in the course of the sort of buried in the article, he talks about how, you know, he's a historian, I think, of of, of Africa. And um, he and his family went to a wedding in Ghana, and they went on a tour of this place called Elmina Castle. And he comments in the article, he says, you know, the, the weird thing about this place is that it's become, an, he describes it as, I mean, you talked about pilgrimages, Tom. He describes it as an African-American shrine. It's become more of an African-American shrine than a Ghanaian archaeological or historical site. And then he goes on to say, He's really troubled by this because he says less than 1% of the Africans who went through Elmina went to North America. The vast majority went to to Brazil Brazil. or the Caribbean. But their stories are kind of erased and it's been turned into, I mean, he doesn't make this explicitly, but he basically is saying it's been turned into a kind of Disneyfied tourist attraction for relatively affluent African Americans. Well, also that it's been retrofitted. Yeah. That the history's been retrofitted. Exactly. And the the slaves taken to Brazil have been erased, basically. Now, the difference between the 1990s is he wrote this, um, and it's actually a very sober kind of piece. There was a massive furore, and he did that thing, which we've talked about a few times on the rest of history. He did this sort of post-cultural revolution groveling apology. 
and he said, um, I have, I'm deeply sorry. I have, I've let everybody down. I should never have pointed this out. I've alienated my colleagues. I've done this, that, and the other. And it's actually, I mean, without us taking sides on this at all, because we're not specialists, you know, it's a very good example of how embittered this whole and how incredibly difficult this whole conversation has become. Yes. And I think also it lends weight to the idea that this is, um, fundamentally about it's it's a place of of almost religious pilgrimage and the issues are basically kind of you know verging on the theological i think that as uh you know the the overt hold of kind of christian doctrines that was so important to the civil rights movement have kind of faded from a progressive wing of american politics in a way history has come to replace the bible it's come to replace um, the theological dimensions. To question received understandings of history has become akin to to questioning devoutly held beliefs about right. r- religion and God. Yeah. And you know, just as questioning the validity of a religious place of pilgrimage is incredibly sensitive, so likewise, it, it, it's evident that to question this is is similarly um, it upsets people very much because there, there there are two arguments. Wouldn't there? One would be to say you white Americans, or indeed Britons, or indeed white British podcasters. Right, right. As I'm about to say, exactly that. White British podcasters or white American historians doesn't matter which have no business. You know, this is yet more colonialism or something. Some people would say sort of a, some kind of intellectual colonialism. And the other counter argument, I suppose, would be um, well, in a way, the literal truth whether or not millions of slaves pass through is less important than the metaphorical truth. That's what yeah. the defenders of this um, institution would say, wouldn't they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's pretty much what, uh, what, what Dion Brand is saying, I think. And what do you think, Tom? Well, I think that, um, that, that that is up to the individual pilgrim who goes there. I mean, I entirely see that if you're an African-American who wants some sense of contact with your ancestor, and all the suffering and horror that was inflicted on those ancestors. And this door, this building, this island has come to be a focus for that. I don't think that the kind of statistical evidence for it actually matters one way or the other. I think it's perfectly possible, and I speak with some experience of this, to, to go to a place where you know that the history may be dubious, but because it's become endowed with particular understanding by generations of people who've gone there before you the power of it is you know you can feel the power very intensely Mm -hmm. um but i think the difficulty is you know that's a legitimate response but i do also think that you know a world of historical inquiry in which it is basically forbidden to ask questions about pretty basic historical facts is a troubled one i think yeah i think that's absolutely right that's exactly what i would say so so if i go to the imperial war museum and I look at the little ship they have there, the Tamsin, the smallest of the little ships that uh, that carried people back from Dunkirk, which obviously stirs great feelings of patriotic excitement in all right-thinking Britons. You can go there and, and feel moved by it while simultaneously knowing <laughs> yeah. that most soldiers yeah. were not rescued by little ships and that had that little ship never gone, you know, the course of the war would be no different. And, and actually it's perfectly reasonable to have both those things in your head at once. Then on the one hand, you're very moved by this sort of, this little metaphor. But on the other hand, you know, as a scholar, that the, as it, in inverted commas, the real history is, is very different. And I think the, the problem with this is if one yeah. crowds out the other. Well, I, I, I don't think that a myth 
a myth isn't a dirty word, I don't think. No, agreed. And, and myths are deserving objects of historical study. And the way that they grow and the, the, the hold that they have. Yeah. It's not for historians to patrol them and mock them and poo poo them and say that they're not valid because they are. But likewise, I, I don't think that you can, you know, and I kind of had experience of this writing about religion. Yeah. In a way, you have to acknowledge the power and the potency of religious myths, of religious teachings or whatever, while simultaneously adopting a kind of skeptical attitude where there is room for skepticism. I also think you can't have a world in which James W. Sweet or whatever his name is, or or any or, or Philip Curtin, that they feel they can't talk about this by virtue of their whiteness. Well, I think I think the thing that's interesting is that that Curtin obviously never felt that, whereas Sweet obviously does. <laughs> so, uh, and I think that that's a kind of reflection yeah. of, of maybe the the. Uh, the, the, the change of culture in, in the United States. I mean, I have to say, from my own point of view, I was not expecting to arrive at this conclusion. I mean, I did, I, I did not know this when I, when I set out. Uh, and I think it's a really, really interesting topic. I mean, the test, I suppose, to some extent is if you were in Senegal, would you go? And of course, I would go, wouldn't you? I would absolutely go. Yes. Yes. And it wouldn't bother me that it was slightly confected but i would want to know i would want to know the truth as well as seeing the metaphor but you're saying that as someone whose ancestor wasn't ever taken from no. the coast of africa so i think that the emotional complications of it are are you know are more complex for agreed for people whose ancestors were taken from there it's easier for a skeptic to sort of hurl out opinions from the outside you know someone who's not personally involved than i guess it is for a pilgrim to use your analogy Tom. Yeah, in a very, very different way. Uh, I don't particularly like people casting doubt on the greatness of Alfred. Um, <laughs> for instance, you know, there are there are fields in history where we have emotional engagement equally. There is a kind of responsibility if you're a historian, if you're researching his history, researching the past, that you have to deal with a certain, you know, where there's a certain bedrock of fact. Mm-hmm. I don't think that you can ignore it. Tom, it wouldn't be a rest is history podcast about the history of Senegal if you didn't find a way to bring it back to Alfred the Great. (laughs) And you have. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, no, it's an absolutely fascinating story because it raises interesting questions, not just about, I mean, in a weird way, this is not a story. It it started out as a story about Senegal in, you know, the the early modern period going up to the 18th century and then newly independent Senegal. But it's actually ended up being a podcast about the racial politics of America and about the nature of history and myth. So, like all great rest is history podcasts, it's gone. We've, we've been on a journey, Tom. We have, haven't we? We have. We've been on a journey and we'll be going on another journey tomorrow, excitingly. So we'll see you then. We will see you then. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.